0: You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. A naive and recent graduate of Nottingham Art School, 20-year-old Alistair McKim walked into the ID offices toting his self-made magazine portfolio when he first met then fashion director Edward Enningful. 23 years later, he's now the global editor-in-chief of the magazine and works as a stylist and consultant for a number of different brands like Marc Jacobs, Bottega Veneta. He did a kid's collection with Zara and he's done three different books with IDea. Most recently, he launched McKim Corp, where he'll work with brand partners on special projects. And today, we sit down in his airy and spacious loft to record this first episode of the season. Hi, this is
1: Alistair McKim, and we're talking about what's contemporary now.
0: So let's jump in. Alistair McKim, Belfast born. You went to school in Nottingham and then moved to London, eventually leading up to the point where you started to assist Edward Enningful, who at the time was the fashion director of ID. So I wanted to extract what you would attribute to those different periods of your life as far as education and how they've shown up in your career today. That's a great question. Yeah, it's interesting because when I first started styling, you sort of try and
1: find your own way and what it is your voice is about. I knew nothing about fashion at all until I went to fashion school in 97. I went to Nottingham. So I was born in Belfast. I grew up there in the 80s and 90s and there was no fashion to be heard of as far as where my head was at all. It was much more about street style Mm -hmm. and like skateboarding, surfing, hip hop, punk. Those were the four real main topics of interest for me, especially as a teenager. And I started surfing when I was like twelve and skateboarding when there was no waves. It's kind of like the usual teenage stuff, like skateboarding and like super colorful baggy clothes. And then when I moved to Nottingham I started to learn about fashion and what I really loved there. And I'd never It never picked up ID Magazine until I moved to Nottingham. I don't know if it was for sale in Ireland, but I certainly never saw it. So before collecting ID Magazine, I was collecting like skateboard magazines, surf magazines, you know, Rad Magazine was like an amazing magazine for street style. So I moved to Nottingham and I discovered ID and this magazine that really resonated with me. I just got really into it and started collecting it. And then at college, I learned about designers I'd never heard of, like Ralph Simmons and DeMille Meester and Margiela, all the things that I still love. And Helmet Line was really prevalent at that moment. I remember picking up the magazines like ID and Purple and Self Service and seeing the Line advertising, Maplethorpe Pictures, like advertising that wasn't even selling clothes, but like a brand. And like I was obsessed with that. Mm-hmm. Especially if you think of what images like David Sin Shim, Raph Simmons, things like that that I really, really connected with really resonated with me because it was like, oh, there's kids that look like me and my friends growing up in Belfast, skateboarding in fashion magazines. So that was the transition for me was really Raph Simmons images. That was how I transitioned from just surfing and skating and music into more kind of understanding of fashion. Because again, it's the late 90s, so there's no internet. Like, it's so mm-hmm. different now, you know? Absolutely. Like, we're so connected to everything that's going on. Anything that you're into, you can find. But back then, it's like, go to the library, go to the magazine store, go to the bookstore. It was very purist in that sense, because we had to really, like, seek out what we were looking for. And I think there's something beautiful about being a teenager and being really into whatever it is you're into. Whatever that is, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. But, like, those kind of informative years of being obsessed with things, you know? So yeah, I spent three years in Nottingham then I moved to London. By that point, I'd already collected ID for three years. I knew who everybody was. I'd studied it. I knew they were on Tabernacle Street. I knew the address. I knew who worked there, all of that stuff. And I was really following the work. Like I graduated in 2000. The day after I graduated, I moved to London. The day after that, I went to ID magazine and knocked on the door with my portfolio. And it's very, it's very naive in a sense. I was like, I've arrived. Like when do I start kind of thing, <laughs> which is funny. And then like, yeah, a few months later, I, I sort of got to know the receptionist there and I knew David Lamb, who's a fashion editor through like his girlfriend who was working at a PR agency. And like I interned at a PR agency and like couldn't even answer the phones. I was just so disorientated. That's I nice. wasn't ready to work really. And then I went to meet Edward, who was looking for an assistant. And I went with my design portfolio And at that point. Like anything in college, I was doing fashion design, but I also took the photos, did the styling, Mm -hmm. did the casting, made the clothes, did the graphic design, made a magazine out of my work. Like I just did everything. Mm -hmm. And I think he found that charming. And I went to meet him and with my huge, big art school portfolio and showed him my design work and my drawings and my photography and all of these things. Mm -hmm. And then I started working with him. So by the end of 2000, I was already assisting and I was like 20 years old. You know, it's kind of crazy to think about it. Again, as someone who wasn't really ready to work.
0: And what would you say were the key takeaways as far as what you learned during the time you were working with Edward as his assistant? I mean, I knew nothing, so I learned so much.
1: You know, it's just like, it was baptism of fire, really, you know? It was amazing because it was exactly what I wanted to do, exactly what I thought I knew a lot about, but I really didn't, you know. And again, when you're assisting and you're that young, it's like the delusions of grandeur. I remember thinking the way that we worked was just the normal level to work at. And then once I stopped assisting, I realized how difficult it was to like get the models, get the photographers, get the clothes. All of the things that you, you know, when you're assisting at that level, you just sort of expect, you know. And then you realize how difficult it is to actually get those people in a room, get those clothes in a room, the concepts, have the relationships with the magazines, like all of the things that Edward had at that time. And we were both so young. I mean, he was 27 mm-hmm. and he was fashion directing ID and we were working on Italian Vogue, we were styling shows for Joe Sander, but we were still kind of kids in a way, which I think when you're that age you don't think you're a kid but now that I'm this age I think I was a kid you know so so it's just again it's like perspective but you know I got to travel I'd never traveled before like when I went to Nottingham I went on the boat from Ireland Uh so like suddenly I was traveling to Paris going to Milan coming to New York you know Mm -hmm. the first time I came to New York was in 2002 and we came here to shoot Kate Moss for like a cover with Craig McDean and I mean, for me, it was all just incredible. I loved it all. Being in a photo studio blew my mind, working on fashion shows blew my mind, meeting these photography heroes of mine, you know, coming here to work with Craig, going to Paris to work with Paolo Eversi, like just incredible experiences, you know. I was so intimidated, was terrified all the time. It was really intense. But I think with Edward, he understood that I couldn't do any of the admin stuff. I wasn't good with the billing or any of that kind of stuff. So he was like, oh, go do some research. So go research or go buy vintage. He would always tell me to go buy vintage. That was probably just annoying him. So he'd be like, go buy vintage.
0: And what does research look like during those years as a process? Um, going to the Vogue library at Condé Nast, mm-hmm. going to
1: the libraries all over London and photocopying, scanning. The research that we would do would all be from books magazines. Because we were contributing to Japanese and Italian Vogue, we were able to get access to the Vogue library, which was really genius. Being able to like delve into archives that now we, again, we take for granted in a way. Uh And I think really good vintage stores and antique stores in London that I really learned a lot about as well going to costume companies and rental places and things like that which again you get to see all of these amazing clothing pieces and accessories and garments and you really get to do that we used to just be out on foot a lot i think now as an assistant you're kind of in an office uh-huh. emailing people for looks from the runway it was so different then i mean the pace of things we would go to the shows work on shows see shows We'd come back to London. We'd hang out, wait for the lookbooks, mm-hmm. fax requests. It was just so slow compared to the way we work today. But it was incredible. But for me, it really opened up my world, the travel for sure, and just seeing the creative processes, and even just being introduced to stylists such as Ray Petrie that have had such a huge impact on my career. Mm-hmm. Like being introduced to him in. 2000 because of books on Edward's library shelf and stuff, you know, so all of those things were just discoveries, really.
0: Well, you also have the sort of glory story of having come full circle with a lot of the people that inspired you before you were even in the business. And now those yeah. are people that you're shooting with. Yeah. It's pretty impressive to see that full circle. And obviously that also applies to your journey with ID as a magazine, Yeah, having started in that capacity and now today operating as the global editor-in-chief. So yeah, being as well-versed as you are in the evolution of the title, what things jump out to you? During the time that you've been editor in chief, in terms of changes you've made, cover stories, collaborators, or any of those types of things? I don't know. I think my journey as editor in chief
1: is just an evolution of my journey as a creative ID. You know, it sort of feels quite old school in a way, like my ascent in a way, and doing literally every single run of the ladder. I always really impress on young creatives to sort of meet their mentors and work their way up and learn the craft and apprenticeship and like all of these things I don't know if it's really the attitude today but I I can be doing what I'm doing today without every single day that's led up to this when I got offered the position ID to be editor-in-chief I just couldn't stop thinking about it and what the possibilities would be and it's because I really feel like it's in my blood you know it's twenty three years I've been working at the magazine so I really feel like it's instinctual at this point and there's always just an intuition to what we do and then also what's happened over the last few years I've really been able to build a team that I love around me and I think the most important thing for me really is the collaboration you know we're talking about what's contemporary I think to me that's what it is and even like I was saying studying Ray Petri and like Buffalo and how that was a collective of people that were just stronger together. I think that's really important. And my team now, we've got to a point where I just feel like there's so much less pressure on me because the team is all working in the same direction. And I feel like everybody's just picking up their piece and like running with it. We're all running the same way. So it's really cool actually, because I feel like I'm able to have more Headspace for other projects and for personal life and for all of these different things. I mean, our goal really, Lucy Day, who's the managing director and I, we got these positions at the same time. She became publisher when I became editor in chief and really our goal and what I pitched to her was just to make the magazine as strong and vibrant as possible and to give her a product that she could sell. Because I think there's always been this kind of like church and state mentality about art and commerce, you know, Mm -hmm. and especially with ID, commerce has been kind of like an ugly word. And I think for me, it's not the case. I've been able to work and build my career and move to New York and work with big clients and work on brands and watch how that whole kind of machine works. And I wanted ID to become like a big corporation in a way, you know, and I think we've succeeded in that already. I mean, it's like quadrupled in size in three years and that's financially, you know, and I think I've always been quite pro building brands and making money so that you can make more work and you can give more back to the people that are making the work. So it's to me, like the whole commercial side of the enterprise is really exciting. I mean, look at the community we have, like mm-hmm. the, the creative part is a no brainer. It's like, how do we build the brand? And my learning now is from the new people in the team, socials team, the video team, all the editors are working on the digital, the commercial team. All of these people are teaching me not, again, it's like this full circle thing. I'm like sort of as far as I can go with the brand, but then I'm learning from people that are coming in with
0: like a new kind of vision for it and that's what's exciting. Absolutely. You've also talked about the office in particular when it comes to your plans of how you wanted to run the magazine and the role of things like WhatsApp or perhaps you guys use Slack today. I don't know, but what role or value do you think office spaces play in creative industries such as running a magazine yeah that's a great question i laugh when you say Slack because they won't let me on the slack oh really <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah i think
1: I, I don't think they need me on the slack um whatsapp groups we use a lot the way that we fire communication now is incredible Literally. and i love it and i'm very fast and very efficient But having said that, you know, I was in London a couple of weeks ago and I sat down as a team in person and it was beautiful because we haven't done it in years. And I mean, when I say the team, I mean, everybody, Mm -hmm. I had editors from Paris and New York there and the whole team from London. And I think that was really special to have a real team there sitting around on couches, talking about ideas. And it was really cool because I was definitely in the mindset of I can do this from New York and work remotely and this is in 2019 when I mm-hmm. got the job so we were all working remotely in a sense mm-hmm. but I think what's important now is that we've combined those things together and I think it's nice to see people in person I think we're just also used to FaceTime and Zoom and phone calls and WhatsApp and DMs and text messages and emails and all of these things that it just kind of works it's just one big kind of melting pot of communication You of know, of
0: course yeah there's such an interdependent aspect of how a magazine is made. So I was curious as to how well it works with those channels, but it seems to be working quite well. Yeah. And with regards to a magazine, as the editor-in-chief of such a prominent publication, what role do you think a magazine culture, or rather a magazine cover, plays in culture today? A cover?
1: I mean, for us, it's kind of like the biggest communication tool. It's like an introduction to the magazine. Mm -hmm. And I think there's always conversations about like solo covers, multiple covers, all of that kind of thing. For us... We're all about energy, you know, and I think like what our covers do for us is bring energy, they bring the community, they bring the noise of whatever it is we're feeling at that moment, you know, and we sort of like gone through different concepts as far as like what we want the magazine to stand for. I mean, certainly whenever I first started, I didn't want to do themed issues because I really felt like that's not how we live today. The way that I consume Information is really haphazard and a lot of it's on Instagram. And I love that kind of bouncing from one thing to the next and getting all your information. I'm very much like a sponge in that sense. I just love seeing as much as possible and then seeing how that kind of gets regurgitated in a way, as far as what I'm think that is happening in culture today. Mm -hmm. So whenever I started, it was much more about these kind of esoteric kind of themes and we would just do whatever work we wanted to do. And it really was a mood board and like an Instagram feed in a way of a magazine. And of course, being so determined that that's what we should do, then I changed my mind. And when Johnny Liu came in and started working as the creative director and his design studio does all the graphic design for the magazine, we did a few issues and then we were like, oh, maybe we should try and do like a themed issue. So we did a body issue, then we did an Earthrise issue, then we did a fashion issue. And it's these very broad strokes ideas for issues, Mm -hmm. but they do sort of help to focus everybody. But then what I don't want to get into is boxing ourselves in because I think ID is all about freedom. And I think as soon as we start isolating these very specific ideas, I get creative block in a way, Mm -hmm. because I start trying to micromanage things into like a box. So that's why I think it'll be interesting to see where it goes next year. I mean, we're already thinking different ways of presenting the magazine, but as far as the covers, it really just was about these heroes of the moment, Mm -hmm. really. like That's what it is. To me, what the magazine is at the rest of the brand isn't is this time capsule. So I think it's really important that every issue just speaks of that moment because that's what magazines should be. I collect magazines. I want to be able to like what was happening in February, 2006. And Mm -hmm. you look at a magazine like ID and you kind of have a feel for what was happening at that
0: moment. So I just want to make sure we keep that. Well, you've also talked about the curatorial aspect of putting together a magazine. So As someone who's not just worked as an editor-in-chief, but also an editor, a stylist, a consultant for brands, putting together shows, collections, how those are expressed on a runway and how they're perceived by people. How would you break down the difference of those two processes, putting together a collective of content that makes up an issue of a magazine versus what that looks like as a process with a collection?
1: I mean, that's the thing. I think my job is... Curating, you know, Mm -hmm. but I guess it's can sound quite pretentious, I suppose, but that's really what it is. And that's what I love to do. And I would love to do more of that. But I think left to my own devices, I edit everything into like dust, you know. Mm -hmm. I think I like to really reduce everything. And what the magazine has taught me is that you have to give things space and give other people space and ideas space. And I think certainly the area that I've developed in the most being an editor, rather than being a stylist is kind of being more open. It's like this open-mindedness that has been really good for me. I think personally, to be able to put work in the magazine that I don't like, that's really important. I think it's about a, a collective community and a collaboration. It's interesting with being an editor because you want it just to be Alistair's magazine? Like, no, it's not Alistair's magazine, it's ID magazine. So that's why I think because I'm so respectful of the heritage of the brand, I'm able to do ID magazine. <laughs> and I think sometimes editors really make the magazine about them and it's really their personal singular journey. But I think with ID, like it's, it's absolutely impossible. There's just too many bright, vibrant voices that I could ever try and get everybody to do the same thing. I think that's what's cool about it is that I feel like it's so organic, like the magazine sort of makes itself. The magazine tells me what to do next. It's kind of bigger than all of us, you know, and I think
0: that's really special. Absolutely. And also you have a global role. We work in a global industry and at this particular point in time, it's become very much a global market as far as how the fashion industry operates. Yeah. What Ways do you feel as though you've potentially changed or maybe inform your work as a result of having lived in New York as long as you have? I mean, I think I get the best of both worlds. I love New York. I've been here since 2006. So
1: it's like a long time now. I'm definitely a New Yorker and Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm ever going to leave, but who knows? I certainly can't predict the future, unfortunately, but I think it's really rounded out my sensibility. Uh And I think also because I didn't come from London, I think if I grew up in London, I'd be much more like London-centric, but because I came from Ireland then Nottingham, then London, then New York, I'm no more English and I am American. It's like I'm Irish and it's just like, it's a different thing. And also like I was so, so inspired by American culture as a teenager. Oh wow. Just East Coast, West Coast, hip hop, surfing, skating, all of that stuff is like America for me, you know? (laughs) And I feel just as connected to New York being from Northern Ireland as I would probably more connected to New York being Irish than I am to England, even though it's further. I mean, there's a lot of my people here in a way. But it's also like, you know, looking at other careers that really inspired me. People like Melanie Ward, for example, cutting edge London stylist, moved to New York, works with Calvin Klein, works with Helmut Lang. I mean, like, that's just a great story. Mm -hmm. And that's why when I moved to New York, I wanted to work with Gap, Calvin, DKNY, Tiffany, all of these brands that I've worked with. And like Supreme, for example, Uh it's a brand that I wear, it's a brand I believe in and something that I've always followed. So like New York for me is really an epicenter. It's just interesting because everything is so global now. I think like sometimes when we're negotiating for cover stars, the publicists are like, oh, you're a British magazine. This American magazine is going to come out at the same time as a British magazine, so it's not a conflict and it is a conflict. Everything's a conflict because we work
0: globally. Mm -hmm. We don't, it's not regional. I was going to ask you if you still identify as a British title, but I guess that answers the question. No, we're not. I don't know. I just think we're deeply
1: rooted in British culture and in mm-hmm. like London culture. But no, I think we're a global magazine. I think that's also what's really helped with me being here. There's like a big team in London, but also if you think about it, a lot of the people that you know that work at ID, we're all just on the move. We live in Paris, we live in New York, we live in London and LA and wherever. And we're always moving around as well there's something very nostalgic and I love the idea of the old days where you'd sit in the London office and you never traveled and like mm. you could do everything from there and people come in to do in-person meetings and all of this stuff but like it's just not realistic it's just not how things work and it was really great for me to be able to see a lot of the team in one place in London but normally that doesn't happen because everybody's on a trip here a trip there shooting whatever making their work so yeah I think What I was able to do for ID, being in New York, was really introduce it to a new generation of New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. The first person that we ever photographed for ID under my editorship was Tyshawn, and Mm -hmm. he didn't know what ID Magazine was. Wow. And I was like, you know, if you want someone to like the magazine, you just put them in it. Mm -hmm. And I think someone like him is really a young star. And also I wanted to introduce New York to the magazine and the magazine to New York in a way, of course, we know about it, but we're like a different generation.
0: Well, also fashion can periodically fall prey to operating in a vacuum just because of proximity bias or whatever. And so that was something else I wanted to ask you. How is it that you maintain a broader casting of the proverbial net when it comes to inspiration, ideas, and creativity without falling prey to that vacuum that the industry can? Again, I think it goes back to this Mm open-mindedness that I've been trying to discover
1: and work on for the last few years but I've also always been into multiple things. Like I've always been in the street culture, but I've always been into the fashion and mm-hmm. I always loved high fashion and sportswear and streetwear and all of these different things. And I love music and I love style and I love identity. And it's like, it's so broad and I think it's exciting for me to be able to work in New York with Supreme and Marc Jacobs, for example. To me, they're kind of the same, but they're so different. Different ends of the spectrum, but they're still on the spectrum. I just find that exciting. And both
0: those brands love each other. Yeah. I mean, it's a slight segue, but something that we've seen a lot of chatter about in the media is the narrative around work-life balance or quiet quitting or, you know, previously the great resignation or whatever. (laughs) And you look at your career, you have this huge role as the global editor-in-chief of a publication while you're also working with incredible brands from Supreme to Marc Jacobs or even Bottega. You've done three different books. You've partnered up with Zara on a kid's collection. You're a father. What does work-life balance look like is Alistair, we can oh God, <laughs> ask my therapist. I don't know, it's
1: just a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Sounds cheesy as well, but like, I just, I love it. I love it. And I live and breathe it. And mm. I feel so fortunate. I mean, I never thought I was going to be able to have this career. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of gratitude in that. Gratitude and an addictive personality is like the recipe for a good career. I'm really grateful because honestly, all the people I work with are my heroes. So mm-hmm. it's like, and you have to get over that hump of being nervous and being intimidated and all. All of mm-hmm. those things and then realize that you can actually bring something to the table and i think with the magazine that was a way for me to go beyond the chapter i sort of felt i had finished with styling mm-hmm. because then i'm able to give back and i think being able to give back is infinite you know
0: do you still get moments of imposter syndrome of course
1: yeah no i don't know i think my mentality has changed so much in the last few years and so i i just know that i'm there to help people mm-hmm. that really takes a lot of the anxiety out of working if you know that you're there it's very humbling to be there to be of service to people and to help so it's a constant battle between like being a service and being an ego really because sometimes when you get stressed you want to force things and also like when i work with most of the people i work with i am just there as a backup dancer you know what i mean with the designers with the, the photographers thing. they're the heroes i'm there to support their vision and add to that and i think when i first started working with really established photographers i was almost scared to give my opinion and then i realized that's what they feed us as well mm-hmm collaboration yeah collaboration you get on set with some of the icons of photography and I you know the beginning I was just really quiet and shy and then you realize like they want as much as I do from this and feedback and bouncing off ideas and like even to have strong personalities to bicker with and argue with and disagree with I've seen with designers a lot of stuff that I say to designers they don't want to do but it's important to have me in the room to like ask the questions because I think that's how
0: you move forward if I was just sitting here in a room trying to be creative, it wouldn't happen. It really is about the collective. And before I ask my last question, I wanted to circle back to what we were touching upon with regards to the Glenn episode and what that triggered as a thought process for you. (laughs) I love listening to Glenn talk about the metaverse and all of this stuff. And I think he's such a forward thinker.
1: He loves it. He was certainly one of the first people to talk to me about it and like what it can mean for photography, what it can mean for filmmaking, what it can mean for styling and fashion and all of these things. He's really thought about it and he's really done his research and he's really kind of obsessed with it. But I'm not afraid of the idea of a metaverse taking over from what we do. I'm really not afraid of that. I always liken it to like cinema and television. There's still cinema and there's still television. It's not Mm -hmm. like TV took over from cinema and we're sitting here doing a podcast. That's just as important as making a film or whatever. It's so important to have these conversations. You know, everyone's so into podcasts now. Can you imagine if you're like, oh, there's never going to be radio anymore because there's TV. Mm -hmm. or There's never going to be cinema because there's TV. And it's not true. We just have both. And it was the same when I started editing the magazine. It was like, print is dead. And I was like, no, it's not. Mm -hmm. We just have to do it really well. And we have to do it as part of a bigger picture. And we have print and we have digital, we have socials, we have brand, we have commercial, we have all these parts of the machine that are working in the same direction, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And it all just uplifts each other. And that's what's genius about it. It's symbiotic. It's really symbiotic. And I don't think suddenly like the metaverse is going to just completely cannibalize our lives. It's not. There's still people who want magazines and there's people who want to live in the
0: metaverse Mm -hmm. and each to their own. Of course. And what to you is contemporary today? What is contemporary now?
1: (laughs) And you were going to ask this question. It's hard to answer that question for me without sounding pretentious. Because I really think contemporary is just being honest, you know? Uh It's truth. Authenticity. Honesty. And I don't know, there's just something that feels very contemporary to me of just being very human, feeling our feelings and surrounding ourselves with
0: the people that make us the best that we can be. Beautifully said. Thanks again for taking the time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Miller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft. And visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes. And for more content, follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary or visit us online at What'sContemporary.com.